This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're starting chapter 18. Humility is a tough sell. We like it when others act humbly towards us. But we often admire the proud and the powerful, the people that get their way no matter what and achieve their goals by hook or by crook. Jesus confronts his disciples when they descend into bickering about their own personal greatness. Jesus has a whole different view of what makes a person great in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not the order we prefer, but it's the order we should pay attention to. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. For now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So let's read the introduction of this new part of the Gospel of Matthew here, this major discourse portion. And let's see what Jesus has to say about the subject of true greatness. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So a lot, a lot of richness here in these six verses. We're going to learn to embrace Greatness according to Jesus' value system. So in order to do that, first we need to understand our pride in verse 1. This is what the text is telling us all about. The disciples here who came to Jesus fighting to see who would be the greatest. That is a representative of human pride. That's our pride. Matthew opens the scene by showing the disciples' desire for preeminence in the kingdom of heaven. Now Mark is writing a parallel account of this and he points out that they argued about who would rank higher in the kingdom. So this was not an innocent question. Mark says this in Mark 9 verses 33 through 34, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what are you discussing on the way? What what were you discussing on the way rather? But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another, which of them would be greatest. Luke, again, telling the same story, observes that an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. That's Luke 9 verse 46. So here's how I think this whole thing happened. The inner circle guys, remember James, John, and Peter, had a a wonderful experience in the Mount of Transfiguration. And that experience may have caused the other nine disciples to feel left out. Especially because Jesus had instructed them to not share anything until after the resurrection. Chapter 17 verse 9 tells us that. Which does not mean that the three have obeyed that command because of the very fact that they were arguing to see who would be the greatest. So as a result, what we have here is wounded egos that caused the relationships to rupture and sparked disunity and rivalry between brothers in Christ. And just like it did them, obsession with preeminence happens among ministers of the gospel today too. Pastors and lay leaders alike, for example, face the temptation to compete for the biggest crowd, 
for the larger budget and for more influence. And non-ministers also struggle with this misguided quest for greatness. If you don't believe me, just consider the following question and answer that sincerely in your heart. I don't need to see your hand up or anything like that, but consider this question. How do you feel when someone else gets the promotion? How do you feel when someone else gets the raise, the invitation, the prize, or the accolades? Jealousy and pride are almost exclusively the reason for every conflict. They affect marriages. Jealousy and pride affect leadership teams, advisory boards, deacon boards, elder boards, and all kinds of other boards. Resentment rears its ugly head when people realize they have not been placed in charge of a particular situation. And we tend to get bitter when we realize we are not in the inner group or we don't have the inside scoop. And what we tend to do, church, and you will agree with me with this, we force our way into these situations, into these positions of prominence by unleashing the power of the tongue, which is very destructive. We start speculating, we start second-guessing, and we start mind-reading. Did you realize that? I know what they're trying to do. I know what you're trying to accomplish. Now, this is all because of jealousy and bitterness and resentment. And like the disciples, we obsess with prominence according to the world's value system because that's what we know. No one needs to teach us that value system. We already know that by default. Our flesh operates by that system and we are stimulated by the world. Our sinful nature ensures that we operate by this particular system very naturally. But write something down. You will never accidentally be humble. No one stumbles upon lowliness. It has to take a divine intervention. It has to take a concerted effort on our part because otherwise what we're going to pursue always is being the goat. If you don't know what that acrostic means, it means the greatest of all time, which is very ironic for believers to be thinking that because in reality we are sheep. Like sheep, we are prone to wonder. We are fragile. We are vulnerable defenseless, in constant need of nourishment, supervision, and care, just like a child. The other illustration that Jesus uses here and he introduces in this scene. So here are the disciples coming saying, Jesus, which one among us is the greatest of all time in the kingdom? And he says, really? Let me show you a picture of what it's like to be in the kingdom. And now that we are painfully aware of our pride, Let's learn about his priority. Verses 2 through 6 here. He shatters that value system by which the disciples operated. It introduced an inverted value system where up is down and down is up. According to Mark, the apostolic team stayed in a particular house in Capernaum, probably Peter's house, according to Mark 9, verse 33. And if that was the case, Jesus took this baby in his arms. That's probably one of Peter's babies. He was married. We know that by what the scripture says. And all three synoptic gospels use the Greek word for infant. And Christ used this particular baby to illustrate the timeless truth here and issue the prescription. And he does that in three parts. And the three parts are simple. The example, the encouragement, and the exhortation. So let's start with the example, verses 2 through 5. In this scene, Jesus says very clearly, 
Unless you become like this child and be converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. See, you're thinking about greatness in the kingdom when in reality you should be thinking about entrance in the kingdom. Being the greatest in the kingdom is not your preoccupation. Your preoccupation is to be in the kingdom. You need to understand exactly what it is to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, especially if you're going to lead people to Christ. Because these guys were the ones commissioned, the first generation of disciples, to take the gospel to every nation. So they needed to understand very clearly what it means to get into the kingdom. It's not a matter of switching teams. It's not a matter of changing outside behavior. It's a matter of being converted. So Jesus tells them, forget about rank. Focus on regeneration. To be born again. So this little child, this little infant in Jesus' arms represents or illustrates the new birth without which no one even enters the kingdom of heaven. We are a group of people who are twice born, only to die once. People who are not in the kingdom of heaven will die twice because they're only born once. So Jesus talks about a conversion a change of direction, a spiritual U-turn, if you will. Something that only a God-given, transformed mind and a new self-perception can produce. What Jesus is saying is you need to be converted. And once you see yourself like this little child, completely unable to even move on your own, then you are ready to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if you are preoccupied with being greatness and bringing your accomplishments into the kingdom of heaven, guess what? They cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. No one is born into Christianity. Did you know that? You have to be born again into the faith. And the reason this is so important for us to understand is that the main problem that people need to address in their hearts and in their lives is making sure that they are converted so that they can enter into the kingdom of heaven and assure that they have eternal life. You can focus on the outside all you want. You can regulate behavior and you can clean up the language and leave the heart untouched. That is tragic. Because unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says in John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So church, we need to understand very clearly what it is to be born again. The doctrine of the new birth or the regeneration, which means to be generated again, to be born again, spiritually speaking. So let's make sure all of us here know exactly that we have been born again because the ultimate tragedy is to be left out of the kingdom of heaven, thinking that you can enter the kingdom of heaven with all your spiritual accomplishments. Let me list to you the condition of the unconverted. Paul describes them in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1 and verse 23. And listen to the tragic condition of the unconverted, the people who have not been born again and are therefore outside of the kingdom. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, verse 1. So someone who is outside of Christ, who is not in the kingdom of, of heaven, he may be healthy, she may be healthy, but the point is, spiritually speaking, he or she is dead in his trespasses, in her trespasses and sins. Furthermore, they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 verse 2. That is the tragic condition of the unconverted. They walk according to the power, the prince of the power of the air, aka Satan, the devil, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So obviously the life of that person is going to be characterized by disobedience to God, indifference to the things of God. Furthermore, according to Ephesians 2 verse 3, they indulge the desires of the flesh 
and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath, which means the unconverted follow whatever they feel like. They follow their flesh, whatever impulses they want. They follow their corrupt mind, and they come up with all kinds of systems to operate by. They follow their own flesh in their desires to be great. That is a tragic condition, and Jesus is very clear, unless you are converted, meaning unless you are born again, just like this child here, you need to relearn how to live. And unless you do that, you will not see the kingdom of heaven, and it must be done to you. You have no merit, no credit of your salvation. You are in the receiving end of grace. Therefore, the unconverted stand condemned before a holy God. But that's the bad news. Now, I want you to listen to the good news because Paul continues here in the same text, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. He now describes the condition and the position of the twice-born. He says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to Words us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the condition of the converted, the twice born. You are in the kingdom, not because of anything you have done, but because you have received the grace of God by grace through faith, and that is your reality. If you are born again, and if you are converted like this little child in Jesus' arms. And in light of this, church, how can I even continue this sermon in good conscience without inviting the unconverted in here to make sure you take care of the new birth today, not tomorrow, right now in your heart? The Bible said this is very simple. You ask him. You ask him to save you. It's the greatest prayer you will ever pray in your life. Jesus, save me. And he will make you new. He will make you a new creation. So be converted. Be born again. Be made like this little infant, this little toddler, and enter the kingdom of heaven. While the disciples wanted prominence, Jesus informs them that presence is more important. In other words, prioritize admittance to the kingdom over applause in it. Prioritize entrance over eminence, redemption over renown, salvation over status. Because that's true greatness. In God's eyes, my friends, true greatness means being having been admitted to the kingdom of heaven. And once you're there, acting like this little child, operating by a value system that imitates childlike humility. And we know that because in verse 4, Jesus answers their question. They're coming to Jesus and who's the greatest? Since three of us went to the Mount of Transfiguration and we experienced the kingdom in preview form, therefore we are the big deal. So tell us, Jesus. Let, let everybody know so that they can submit to us. According to Christ, if anyone wants to be first, he must be a servant of all. So in kingdom reality, in the kingdom value system, you want to be first, be last. Place yourself at the bottom of the list. Place your priorities, desires, your goals, your preferences at the bottom of the list. Submit to your brother in Christ, to your sister in Christ. Consider him or her more important than you. So that's the example that Jesus gives about his lesson of true greatness. But here's the encouragement in verse 5. He switches now from the literal to a metaphorical infant. Don't miss that, okay? Because when he says here in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, he's not 
referring to that particular child. He's talking to the childlike believer. The reason we know that is because in verse 6 it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. An infant cannot believe. A, a toddler can't even articulate thoughts at this time. So he's saying, he's switching from the literal to the metaphorical infant. The one who believes in him. And now pronounces a blessing on those who receive, accept, and welcome a believer in the context of kindness and goodness and generosity and benevolence. The reason for that, again, church, is the context. Because the desire to be great was causing a rift between brothers in Christ. So he's saying, instead of trying to be great, be good to one another. Receive one another in goodness and benevolence. Instead of trying to step on each other and see who gets to the top first. And the reason for that encouragement is that the father usually cares for his people. Check this out. Through other people. Isn't that the truth? God will care for you. Usually using other people. Usually using other believers, but not exclusively. And almost all of us here have testimonies upon testimonies of how God took good care of us using the generosity and the kindness and the benevolence of other people, other believers. Sometimes we are in the receiving end of this level of divine care. Other times, which is much better in terms of satisfaction, we are in the giving end of that ministry of care for one another. Now, I will never forget my seminary professor, who has now been promoted to glory, Dr. Barnes, stood silently with me in my darkest hour, hand on my shoulder. He didn't say a word while I, my trembling hands signed the death certificate of my son. Earlier on that same day, the NICU cardiologist, whose name I never asked, I don't even know if he's a believer in Christ, he gave me the dreaded news and immediately reached for an embrace, breaking protocol and allowing me to soak his T-shirt with my tears. Jesus took these acts of compassion personally because when these two men ministered to me, it's as if they're ministering to Christ because this is what he says here. Again, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So whenever these two men were kind and benevolent and good to me, they were doing that to Christ. And we understand this concept very well, church, because when someone demonstrates kindness to your children, they might as well be demonstrating kindness to you. In fact, it's better you consider them more noble because they're demonstrating kindness to your children. So likewise, I want you to know, every uplifting word you ever uttered to a believer or ever written to a fellow believer, every encouragement you gave to a child of God, every meal you purchased for them, every burden you helped carry, all of these have been registered in heaven as if done to Christ himself, because that's what he says. And I'll give you the theological reason for that. You ready? You are united with Christ forever never to be separated from him if you are born again, if you are a believer in Christ. Just like my daughter is united spiritually with me forever, she will never cease to be my daughter, no matter what she decides to do in life. It's the exact same thing here. He is united with his people inseparably and eternally. If you are in Christ, again, which can only happen through the new birth, you are only placed in Christ by being born again. You will never be outside of Christ. No matter how badly you sin, you can never sin your way past the grace of God. Because you will never lose your status of being born again. You cannot be unborn again. Now, doesn't mean that God won't discipline his children. In fact, the very next, a couple of paragraphs after this, we're going to learn about church discipline. What do we do when believers sin? But you have the eternal security because he is in you. 
That's the hope of glory. Colossians 1 verse 27. That is we said, that's the reason why he says, if you do it to one of these little ones, my, my believers, but the, who are like children, you are doing them to me. Why? Because you are united with Christ forever, never to be separated from him. That is the hope of glory. Which means, church, where you go, he goes. What you go through, he goes through. His pain is your pain. His joy is your joy. You are united with your Savior at the metaphorical hip forever. And if you want to pursue kingdom greatness according to God's value system, then forget about comparison with other believers and embrace compassion. Forget about comparison. Embrace compassion. Ditch kudos. Demonstrate kindness. Abandon worldly glory. Apply warm gentleness to one another. He gives the example, the encouragement, and he concludes with the exhortation. Verse 6. He contrasts the disciples' self-perception of greatness with the opposite designation now. And again, verse 6, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Now, next time you're tempted to think that you are a big deal, remember, according to Christ, you're a little one. Now, this is not a derogatory term. This is a, an expression of endearment. You are a little one. Obsession with greatness, with position, with status will harm other believers. People who pursue top positions usually step on others to get there. Now, if you're going to be in a top position, allow God to place you there. If you're going to be in a place of influence, let God put you there. But don't pursue it. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue childlike humility and let God take care of the rest. Furthermore, that particular generation of little ones would face the wrath of the world as soon as they started the mission to make other disciples. So Jesus needed to assure them, you are little ones, and I am with you personally. So the warning would assure that Jesus would be personally involved in the protection and vindication of his people. So anytime someone does everything to harm a believer in Christ, guess what, church? They have to answer to God. So next time someone pulls the rug from under you, someone betrays you, someone abuses you, or whatever someone does to put you down, just remember this, they are buying a fight with Christ because Christ is going to be your vindicator. Christ is going to be your protection. Why? Because you are united with him at the spiritual hip, metaphorically speaking. But specifically, the warning here addresses people who causes believers to commit sin. That is why he uses the expression, causes one of them who believe in me to stumble. Because what Jesus says is, it's better to die. It's better to be executed in a cruel way than to cause a believer to sin. Church, this is very serious business. We need to be extremely careful on how we relate to one another. We don't want to cause another believer to sin. Now, you may think of the prostitute enticing a married Christian man. Or the man in the office who sweet talks a married woman to go to an innocent lunch and then talk about emotional stuff, robbing the emotional intimacy that belongs to her husband alone. Or you may think of the woke professor who assaults the faith of young students. Or the politician who coerces you into violating your Christian conscience or whatever the case is. You may think of all of these who will have to answer to God. But even more problematic is the possibility that you as a believer, will act as an agent of sin towards another believer. That is serious business. You want to be careful that you don't cause another believer to sin. In church, this will happen every time you start a rumor under the guise of a spiritual noble cause. 
Control the power of your sharp tongue. Otherwise, you will cause another believer to sin. If you don't know the facts, keep it to yourself. Likewise, a seemingly innocent sharing of a post on social media may trigger a chain reaction of carnal behavior, and before you know it, you were the cause of it. Now, the warning is severe because the matter is urgent. The context tells us that the matter is urgent. The disciples were causing one another to sin by creating division and rivalry between them or among them. So let me borrow an analogy from the text here to illustrate this lesson, this warning that you and I should make sure that we never cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble or to sin. You would never allow a toddler or your baby son or daughter to crawl next to a pool, would you? You would never allow a child to play by the stove. No one here would encourage a baby to stick his little finger in the electric outlet. So, church, I want us to operate by that system. Consider your brother or your sister in Christ so precious, so valued, that you would never say an unkind word about him or her or to him or to her. You would never spread a rumor about his or her motivations because you don't know the motivation. So you must protect your fellow believer from sin. Stop the rumor mill. Derail the gossip train. Strategically change the subject mid-sentence if necessary. Ladies, protect your brothers in Christ by drawing attention to your godliness, not your wardrobe. Guys, protect your sisters in the faith by drawing attention to your holiness, not your flirtatious sense of humor, who's not that funny anyway. Everyone, protect your church from division, sacrificing personal preferences by being a servant to all. It doesn't really matter what you like and what you want. We're interested in what Jesus wants. How does he want his church to function? That's what we're concerned about. So protect your church from division by sacrificing your preferences. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.